Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Founders Great sponsored by Madeira.ai. Today we have Michael from Plus. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us, on. On. tell us a bit more about yourself, Michael. Sure. So my name is Michael. I work at Seed Plus, which is a seed stage venture capital firm based in Singapore. And we primarily look at investing in pre-seed and seed startups in the Southeast Asian region. And I live in Singapore. I've been here for about eight, nine years, but I've been living in Asia for about 20 years. And I'm originally from the States. Wow. So how important is investor training for angel investors or individuals looking to pursue a career in venture capital? or it's something that one can learn through experience? Yeah, I think, so I think for the non-professional investors, say if you're angels or looking at doing some stuff, I don't necessarily think you need training, but it does help to understand the mechanics of how everything works. And I think it helps to maybe do it with other people. So for an example, here in Singapore, we have a group called Angel Central which has like a monthly meeting where they vet some companies and they put them in front of people, but they also uh, do some training courses where they talk to the different instruments, like when to use the note, when to do equity, what to expect for your legal procedure. So I think that kind of stuff helps. And I think, you know, so some amount of reading and learning and maybe going to some of these things is, is, you know, they don't have to do it, but I think it helps. And then I think, the rest is probably going to come through doing right that you're going to make some investments and you're going to learn the process and you're going to have some failures and you're going to have some wins. And, and that's the way it is for all of uh, investing, even the professional investors. So, so you interact, you would have interacted with multiple entrepreneurs from different geographies, be it the States, be it South, different countries in Southeast Asia. So in your experience, how different do you think is the entrepreneurial DNA across different geographies? Or do you think it falls on a uniform spectrum globally? Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's tough to answer. Um, so I think there is some sort of spectrum globally where people are, you know, entrepreneurs and they want to build things. And I think all of these people share some consistent kind of behaviors that they have ideas that generate from within they have the kind of confidence and tenacity to go after these ideas and knowing that startups are hard you won't always get funded right away and you're going to have some adversity um and i you know so i think there's that common thread throughout the world that you know people with these ideas need to focus and work on them and they they can't seem to do anything else and that's what kind of creates this hey, I'm going to build a company. And I think that's shared everywhere. But I definitely think culturally and maybe the environment, you definitely have different versions of these people, right? Like if I look at America and, you know, you look at certain pockets where it's happening and the whole kind of city almost revolves around it and there's lots of capital and there's lots of activities, lots of events, it can create a, a much different atmosphere than if we say we move that same thing over to say you know, Manila and the Philippines, you're clearly not going to have the depth of 
the amount of people wanting to do it. You're not going to have the whole ecosystem of lots of lawyers, lots of capital and lots of experienced founders who've done it before. So clearly things are kind of on some evolutionary path based on how many years they have behind them. Right. So it's really hard to compete with America in that regard. Um, but at the same time, you know, these ecosystems around the globe are growing and getting bigger, but environment has to be a major factor. So obviously depending on where you are, where you come from and where you're actually operating in would have to really change maybe the, what's happening there. So, so I think there's a global thread, but clearly these different epicenters have some different attributes. So someone who wants to be an investor and does not know where to start, what advice would you give him and what should they looking for in startups when shortlisting? Yeah. So I think everybody's going to have to, you know, so I guess if you're talking angel investors again or versus professional investors. So I think with angel investors, I think it's just one of those things that if you have some excess capital, you know, and I, I tend to tell people, pragmatically it's an asset class right like you should be investing some money in cash you know and obviously this is kind of a first world problem people who have money so let's let's admit first that not everybody's even in this position so you're pretty fortunate if you're even in the position to think about this and it's an asset class right so some people like to invest in stocks and some people invest in bonds and mutual funds and gold so to me startups is an asset class it's a risky one it shouldn't be the only one you're doing. So if someone says they never save any money and they don't do any normal investing, I don't really think they should suddenly become angel investors. But let's say you check all the boxes and you want to become angel investors, then I think you should do your homework and you should try to find things that you're passionate about and get to know founders and find something that maybe you can do with another person, you know, de-risk it a little bit and, and start doing some light angel investing. And again, you just have to kind of learn through doing. Um, I think on the professional investor side for, you know, VCs, I think everybody's origin story is probably different. And I think you might have the classical, somebody went to school for finance and then they interned at some place and then suddenly they're a VC. You have people that are entrepreneurs that have exited and become VCs. Uh, people like myself and our team are more coming from an operator startup background or working at large enterprise companies and you know are kind of combining our operational experience with you know the other things that we know about markets and trying to become vc so i don't think there's one singular origin story and i think everybody's reasoning is different but everybody probably has had something in their life where they've learned something that's an attribute for investing whether it's operating companies whether it's financial acumen whether it's strategy business consulting and then they kind of pull those together with the, hey, but I'm going to write a check and I'm going to help these companies grow um, is probably the commonality. But I think how everybody arrived at it is probably always quite different. So um, what is the best advice you can give to someone who's struggling with implementing a great idea and what exactly is the great idea for you? So like if you're talking about an entrepreneur and, you know, one of the things that I always try to tell people, and I think what I would even tell my own kids or when I talk to younger people is you don't have to do a startup, right? I think sometimes we're living in an age where between social media and the, the permeance of tech that you're kind of pounded into you that 
the only thing worthwhile is becoming an entrepreneur and starting a company. And I think it's a little, I mean, it's great culture and it's, it's, you know, and I, I'll never begrudge anybody wanting to do it, but sometimes it creates this feeling that you must do it. And if you do anything else, you're seen as less than successful. And I, I think that's not good because I think one of the things I notice is sometimes entrepreneurs are trying to do things, but they have no experience. Right. And so they maybe have the idea you know, so one, one class, these people have a great idea, but no experience and not quite sure how to pull it together. And even if the idea is amazing, they'll, they'll probably fail because they don't have enough experience. Then the other thing I see is people with neither the experience or the great idea trying to force something. And I think that's the worst because then you don't have any kind of conviction for the idea. Um, and then I think sometimes you'll see people that, you know, are just trying to force ideas and they really, they have experience and they really want to enter, but they're just forcing any idea that sticks. I don't think any of those are great origins. So I think it's good to have experience. So I tell a lot of people go work at a startup, right? Or go work at one of the big companies where you can get some experience, but generally those you're going to kind of stay in your rails and you're only going to be doing one thing. So I always tell people, startups give you a nice chance to multitask around a bunch of different problems and learn and get a lot of experience quickly and that's a good place to start versus i think your own startup because then you can really come at it with some experience and i think those people do better um and i don't think schooling necessarily fixes those problems because sometimes schools teaching you a weird idea so so my advice don't force ideas you know, let them come to you naturally based on the problems you see and kind of the conviction you have. Go out to other startups and get experience first. And you might even find you like it and you'll just stay put, but it's, maybe you do a couple of year tour of duty, but you're going to learn a lot. Um, and then later with all these kind of experiences under your belt and maybe a little bit of savings, you can start to kind of foster a few of these ideas and try to build a startup. But I don't think you should force it. Okay, so this brings me to my next question. AI, fintech, banking, what's your take? So I think a lot of times, like with all these spaces, we're, we're talking a lot about a, a lot of buzzword bingo, right? But I, I think, you know, my lens on this stuff is to kind of remove a little of the acronyms, AI and stuff like that, and just look at the problem spaces. And I think from that lens, you would start to see that there's still lots of opportunity, right? So I, I like to think of the couple of areas I look when I think of fintech or it's just, do you love your bank? And, you know, most people don't, right? Most people have either bad experiences with their bank, they associate them with brick and mortar, waiting in lines, or they think that the apps are not great. I think in Singapore, we're a little bit lucky on the consumer banking side to have quite a lot of choice and I've always found that most of the consumer banking apps from the big companies actually work quite well like they're almost delightful like UOB's got a new version of their app that I find actually quite delightful right but it doesn't necessarily solve all my fintech problems so I think in the world of fintech there are still lots of problems to solve now if AI helps solve that problem great if machine learning if blockchain but those are not the, the solutions in and of themselves. You have to figure out where the pain is. And that's why I admire when you see companies like tra TransferWise and what they've done to kind of just solve transfer pain to even companies we've seen around here that are small companies to help uh, people with simple accounting and things like that. So I think you still got to chase the problem 
and the market space and then use whatever tech is necessary to do it. But I think where you see people kind of putting forth the tech for the tech's sake is where they kind of miss the point. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, so bookkeeping is one such service that is now being automated. What do you think about automated bookkeeping since you have been in the startup ecosystem for a while now? Do you think this yeah, I, startup starts struggles to stay afloat? No, no, I think so. It's an interesting space. I think so myself, I don't manage the books so I, for the fun. So I, I'm not, but I think about, you know, even my own personal bookkeeping and sometimes what a pain it is because I have, you know, you have your banking apps and then you have your other things. You try to aggregate it together. Uh, personally, I use this app called Tushel, which is kind of like a personal finance app and, aggregates all my finances and pulls in all the banking information. It's quite pretty slick. I know there's other companies that do this, but I, I find theirs pretty slick. And then we do see stuff around here. You know, it, what we notice around here is people tend to start with the corporate secretarial services. You know, how do I incorporate a company? How do I manage a company? And then those people sometimes are offering accounting services within it. Um, you know, and then you see people, you know, building on top of zero and some other things, but clearly, there's a room for automating a space that at times is seen as, you know, quite basic functions having to do by people quite repetitively that you could automate. And so there's actually been some companies around here. I think Staples, one of them. Um, and then there's been a few in the incubators, accelerators that are all kind of focused on automating simple bookkeeping tasks. Um, and I do think something will continue to improve there because a lot of it, probably is ripe for automation. Um, so I do think it's going to continue to be a space, but I wonder sometimes if it's built for the small enterprise, if the big guys will eventually glom onto this, like where's the sweet spot for this automation and where can it really save people time and money? Okay. Um, so C++ is it's a new kind of C firm. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, I think so. You, you probably took that from the website. And, you know, I think everybody goes out and builds their website when they first start, <laughs> which yeah. for us is a good, good three and a half years ago. Um, you know, and I, it probably begs to be updated. But at the time, um, when we looked at what was in the ecosystem and things have changed, there's like four or five new funds now, there really wasn't a firm completely focused on pre-seed and seed only that had enough kind of capital to really pull stuff off. And that was largely comprised of people with experience building companies versus experience being VCs. Now I know VCs over time have experience in building companies, so I'm not knocking that, but sometimes if you're kind of a VC first, maybe you haven't built these companies until you have the experience of investing. So I think for us, our background was always building companies or startups or helping companies grow that when we kind of took the, hey, we're only focused on pre-seed and seed, we really can help you operate and build your company and we can put capital in you and kind of carry you to the A. At the time, there really was nothing like that in the Singapore ecosystem. Um, and even now, there's only a few other firms that are kind of like that. So at the time, we felt it was pretty novel, the approach, and it allowed us to definitely raise a nice size fund. And I think we've been pretty competitive in getting into some great deals so, but obviously all the regions and time evolves and 
there's more funds now and there's more people. So, you know, it may not be apropos starting in 2019 to say this, but back in 2015, 16, it, it's how we looked at the market. Okay. And what advice would you give to a budding entrepreneur or people who are looking to raise capital and how and when should they reach out to C plus? Yeah. So I think with C plus, one of the things we kind of pride ourselves on is, it's pretty easy to contact us through the website. We do read all those emails and we reply to them. Obviously we don't turn every single one of the replies into a meeting and funding a company because we, we, there'd be too many, but we are contactable. Um, so what we always tell people is if you're thinking about raising, there's no harm in trying to contact people, but be purposeful about it. I think sometimes people email and say, Hey, I have this idea. I'm working on it. Should I raise funding? And, you know, basically with an email like that, I know they're not ready to raise funding, <laughs> but you know, if you contact with us with, Hey, I've launched my company, I have a deck and I've been building and I have some data from it. What do you think? You know, that's interesting and we might check it out, but at least that's more in the ballpark. So, but I tell, you know, but a lot of people should realize there's enough information online to really understand how to structure a company how to decide when to raise. There's just so much online and so many good books that I don't think this is something that you can't figure out on your own. And if you need to figure it out on your own, you're probably not ready, right? That's what I tell people. But with C+, we're contactable. And usually the advice I give people is just know that raising is a process. It never happens across one email or one meeting. It's a process and it's something for you to kind of find the right VC, get to know them, and the VC finds the right company, and through some steps and a process, that leads to a deal. And it's not always as black and white as people like to make it. It's it's more of a, you know, uh, an emotional process, a personal process, and one where, you know, VCs are trying to figure out where they find a fit. And and in every company, there's not always a fit. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck with the podcasting. You guys do this, what? Uh, you have one a month? One every... Once a week. Once a week. We'll once be... a week. Oh, that's busy. Good. So we'll be releasing once a week. Thank you so much again for joining the show. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me and have a great time.